There have been many wars in Afghanistan. Now the American war is finally ending. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. One might have thought one Vietnam was quite enough. In Indochina, the people there understood the political and military realities, while here in the United States, we were sold a bill of goods that just didn't fit the reality on the ground. The world could see clearly in the 1980s that the word Afghanistan was Russian for Vietnam, (laughs) that there was no way they could win anything like a victory. Afghanistan was, for the most of the 19th and into the 20th century, the grand prize in what was called the Great Game between the British and Russian empires. It is alleged that it was Winston Churchill who dubbed that impoverished, mountainous Muslim country the Graveyard of Empires. And now Vietnam no longer has the distinction of being America's longest war. But just as the American war in Vietnam was from the start in 1954, just plain unwinnable, and could be seen so at the time, a war in Afghanistan has also proven to be tragically futile. Lyndon Johnson understood better than he let on, but he insisted, oh, I'm not going to be the first president to lose a war. Mm -hmm. So it went on and on. He resigned in hopes of bringing peace in 1968. Nixon and Kissinger, of course, sabotaged that, and the unwinnable war did not end until 1975. Now our new president, Joe Biden, recognizes that the reality that is Afghanistan and is ending America's longest war. The troops are coming home, and in doing so, he's doing the right and honorable thing and is also taking a big personal political risk that other presidents did not want to take. According to our guest today, the politically conservative former advisor to to President Reagan, Doug Bandow, the American pullout from Afghanistan is likely to face fierce opposition from the powerful U.S. foreign policy establishment, which Bandow says is known as the blob. As the American base in Bagram is now vacant after 20 years with nearly a quarter million Afghanis dead, and the U.S. is at last ending its war in Afghanistan. So what are the perils, the pluses and minuses? How will this be received by the American public? And what can we learn relative to American foreign policy practices as we move from here? Our guest has written a column titled, Withdrawal from Afghanistan Must Continue. Afghan government's potential collapse is another reason to leave. Doug Bando is a senior fellow at the Libertarian Conservative Cato Institute. Doug Bando, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Happy to be on. Doug Bando is uh, previously served as a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation and a special assistant to President Ronald Reagan. He's a weekly columnist for the American Conservative and Antiwar.com. His columns have been published in Time, Newsweek, Fortune, Christianity Today, Foreign Policy, Harper's, National Interest, National Review, New Republic, and others, in, uh, other newspapers, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. Bando has written and edited several books, including Foreign Follies, America's New Global Empire, The Korean Conundrum, America's Troubled Relations with North and South Korea, and Tripwire, Korea and U.S. Foreign Policy in a Changed World. 
Well, I have sort of a series of questions all based on the blob. What is what is the blob from which opposition to the pullout is likely to be fierce? Is this some kind of actual deep state as opposed to the Trump's fantasy deep state? Is it hidden and secretive or are its advocates out in the open? And if so, who are they and what are they likely to say of the Biden move getting us out of Afghanistan? The blob. Well, it's very above board. The uh, term actually comes from Ben Rhodes, who is uh, Barack Obama's deputy national security advisor. You know, it's hard to be more establishment than that. But Rhodes was really talking about a very visible foreign policy establishment in Washington. You know, these are people who are in government. They are in think tanks. They may be journalists. You know, these are folks who are involved in one way or another in the process. They fill you know, the Atlantic Council and CSIS and the RAND Corporation, you know, these kinds of groups. You know, you see them on op-ed pages. I mean, say a Fred Hyatt at the Washington Post, who's the editorial page editor, somebody who has written on these issues. You see other Washington Post columnists and others. You know, these are the sort of people that, you know, members of the Council on Foreign Relations, and there's nothing nefarious about any of this stuff. I mean, these are people who have a shared interest in international affairs, and they tend to have a shared viewpoint, very broadly speaking, of a very interventionist foreign policy, you know, tend to be supportive of the military adventures over the last uh, you know, couple of decades. So in the main, these people have been reacting very badly hmm. to President Biden's uh, you know, plan to bring home uh, U.S. forces. Now, uh, there's an awful lot of money to be made in war. Lord knows. Uh, I wonder, is this their motivation, the blob? Or, or what, what is, what, why do they do what they do? I think it is much more, uh, they believe in it. Now, there are people, of course, for whom the money is very important. I mean, you know, Dwight Eisenhower talked about the military-industrial complex, and it's very real. Yes. I mean, you know, the, you, know you have industries, you have, you know, companies which want to sell weapons. You know, they, they recognize it's very important, frankly, for us to be at war. Now, you know, again, the, the, I don't think most of these people come in there and think all that matters is we make a buck, so let's, you know, we, let's keep a war going. But when your financial interest is taken up in it, I think it's much easier to believe that, you're per that it's your, the national interest as well, that what you're doing is yeah. serving the national interest. <laughs> yes. yeah. so you've got a very powerful combination here of intellectuals yeah. who do believe very much in this vision of let's you know, do all this stuff around the world, plus the people who make money outfitting the U.S. government so that it can do all those things around the world. So they're sincere. I mean, there's obviously the money factor, but there is a sincere belief that this is something that the U.S. really ought to be doing. Yes? That's right. And in you know, some cases, I think careerism gets in it. I mean, if you're in the U.S. military and presidents want to stay, well, you're much more likely to want to stay. You know, that we've had uh, the uh, U.S. Institute for Peace had a commission that was chaired by, you know, one of the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who had been, uh, you know, active in the war. You know, no surprise, the commission supports the war because, let's face it, it's kind of hard to come out with a study to admit that what you spent several years doing turned out to be futile and a disaster. Mm. So all these things, I think, come together. But my view is it's far better not to assume bad faith on these people's part, because I think most of them, for the most part, they do believe what they're arguing. It's just, you know, there are a whole host of people there, so obviously motivations differ the further you go. Oh, interesting. That That's good to hear. And... You know, I know in the 1980s, enough Americans 
it, not that much time had passed since the Vietnam War, and enough Americans seemed to understand the lessons. And despite President Reagan's support for the Contras in Nicaragua and other right-wing militaristic groups in Central America, there was quite vocal opposition. And another potential Vietnam didn't happen. Perhaps enough time has passed now since since then so that we were intentionally helped to forget the lessons. The Cato Institute, of which you're affiliated, is a libertarian, truly conservative think tank and is wary of foreign entanglements. What about the Republican Party of 2021? Why do you say that they are the forever war party, which for which the theater of war, the actual country, doesn't really matter? Please tell us what you mean by that. Well, it's very strange. The GOP has become almost unanimously, at least in terms of the congressional party, I mean, and that is an important distinction, that the, you know, the congressional caucus of both House and Senate for the Republicans is uniformly hawkish. And you know, it was the only time Republicans would seem to take on President Trump was when he wanted to actually end a war. At which point, Mitch McConnell and I mean, and all the Tom Cotton and all these people would just be outraged and shocked. Lindsey Graham, you know, who spent you know most of the the Trump presidency sucking up to to Trump after you know criticizing him when he ran, you know, all of these people you know sought to keep the U.S. involved. You know, they want us to stay in Syria, they want us to stay in Iraq, they want us to stay in uh, Afghanistan, and it's not uh, it, the question of why is very is very important. It's hard to know. I mean, Trump. For all of his faults, which are absolutely many, I think, as we all understand, did not start a new war. I mean, I have to give that to him. Mm. And he really did, I think, want to bring the, like, the troops home from Afghanistan. And what he found was sustained resistance, not only from the military, but his own appointees, which, frankly, is his fault. You know, you appoint people who don't agree with you. It's kind of hard to complain when they're obstructing your policies. But he faced this extraordinary resistance. You know, and I think, in part, Republicans you know, gained in the Cold War by being the hawkish party. Mm. I think they may figure that still gives them votes. I don't know if some of it's self-selection. You know, I, I don't understand it, because you, if you believe in limited government, the last thing you want is you know, constant war. I mean, you know, war is the ultimate big government program. You know, Republicans out there preaching about limited government and less spending. I mean, I mean, it, the war has been an absolute disaster for those values. Well, it certainly has. And, you know, the Democrats are, are not exactly uh, innocent either. I mean, Hillary Clinton, I think, was <clears throat> intentionally trying to look hawkish. She was very hawkish in 2016, uh, threatened to uh, have a no-fly zone over Syria. And it's, it's been a vote-getter. For both parties. So in a way, Biden has taken a fairly significant risk on this. No, I think he deserves real credit. I mean, what he's done is what Trump claimed that he wanted to do, but didn't. And I think I think that the president, that is Biden, has done it exactly right. You do this immediately after you're taking office. Uh, you get this done. You know, this is going to be off your plate. You will have made the decision. You're going to end it. You're not going to have four years of argument within the administration you know, four years, or if you propose, maybe we should pull out, and you're going to get the same lobbying game pulled against you. And you know, and I think it, it appeared to matter that you know, his son served over there. You know, it certainly appears that Biden True. understands that this war has not been successful. 
that there, and I, I mean, I think the, was the imminent collapse, you know, at least what looks like an imminent collapse of the government there, yeah. tells us if after 20 years this is what we have, it, this has been a disaster for the U.S. There's no reason to have Americans die and to waste more money. So I think the president got this one absolutely right. He knew he'd face opposition. He figures the public is with him. He gets it done immediately. I do not believe there are going to be mass demonstrations mm-hmm. saying, let's please go back to Afghanistan. <laughs> you know, I just, I, you know, there are a lot, there are a lot of kind of chiefs in Washington who, you know, say this, we've got, we've got to stay there. But, you know, you look out across America, there's, there's really nobody out there who believes that. Yeah. So I think, but I think the president is facing down even people in his own administration, it appears. Yeah. I think he's demonstrated real courage and leadership. And actually, uh, today, July 8th, uh, Biden came out and he's, he's already sort of going on the offensive on this. He said, let me ask those who want us to stay, how many more? How many thousands more Americans, daughters and sons, are you willing to risk? How long would you have them stay? And he said during a uh, speech at the uh, White House East Room today. So he's he's uh, taking the bull by the horns, as it were. Uh, and the, all this started, I mean, the, the whole war in Afghanistan, one could see it coming right after 9-11. Though Osama bin Laden was Saudi, our intelligence had determined that the Taliban was sheltering al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. So going back to 2001, what was the original goal of the American limited mission? Could it have gone better? Could it have gone better? Or had the mission transformed really into something else, just a bridge too far? Well, I think the, the critical you know, choice was made in the first year where the U.S. fairly quickly was able to oust the Taliban and for the most destroy or disrupt or you know, kind of you know, move, relocate Al Qaeda, and those were the objectives. I mean, the idea was you've got to you know, take on the terrorist group that was responsible for 9/11, and you want to send a message to governments that if you if you host terrorists to attack America, you will no longer be the ruling government. Right. You know, that it has to be very clear that is a red line for us that all you know all Americans agree on. And I think that was the point, and it required being willing to say, oh, we don't know what's going to come back. And the Taliban conceivably could, though they, see they really did, were in the early days at least, really did seem very, very much on the run. You know, that ultimately it's an Afghan decision. The critical thing is we send this message, we're not going to get involved in the minutia of governing. You know, we don't like what these people stand for, but this is simply not going to be our issue to try to sort out, you know, how they rule over people. That uh, and then uh, you know we can go and we we just leave that message with them. Don't do this again. I mean, you do this again, we will do precisely the same thing to you. It's not in your interest. And to me, that 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 was what we needed to do. And unfortunately, you know, at some point in there, I think it, you know it's the arrogance that really did overcome the Bush administration. That. Uh, you know, the, the idea that we can remake you know, another society. I mean, that's always the idea of social engineering in countries around the world. Again, I don't understand how anybody who claims to be conservative right. can be for that. <laughs> I just, I mean, this is, you know, and I, I try to get people to think, we, we call it strategic uh, you know, empathy you know, in the <laughs> kind of in the foreign policy world. It's you've got to, how do other people see us? And you know, and that helps to think is how how would we view it if they did to us what we did to them, you know, and the notion that you know after the American Revolution the French said well we'll stay around for a while and help you out, 
you know, we, we think you need help on your governing institutions. So, you know, we're going we're, you know, we're gonna to give you a little tutelage here. I mean, Americans would have brought their guns down again and said, no, no, I don't think so. Why don't yeah. you guys go back to where you came from? You know, so, you know, I don't understand why it's so hard for us to understand that. Yeah, nation building. You know, I, I, I don't know how a true conservative could possibly uh, support something like that. Uh, as, as Rocky famously said to Bullwinkle, that trick never works. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> we, we've tried it enough, and unfortunately, <laughs> we should have learned by now. For those who may have, you would think, well, one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. For, uh, for those who may have just <laughs> tuned in, our guest today is Doug Bando, uh, former uh, ad, ad, advisor to uh, President Reagan, a visiting fellow at uh, Heritage Foundation, uh, a senior fellow at the Libertarian Conservative Cato Institute, and he and I are seemingly in agreement here, and he's written about uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan must continue. Afghan government's potential collapse is another reason to leave. And the South Vietnamese government fell the instant we left. You say the end game is not foreordained in Afghanistan. I have no idea, quite frankly, how quickly the Soviet-imposed government fell when they pulled out. What's your best guess as to what happens next? And, and we do need to talk about uh, what the heck kind of governments there have been here. Well, look, part of it is money does matter. That is, you know, these are regimes that have a chance of surviving as long as they have some cash. If they don't have the cash, they go very quickly. The Soviet the regime lasted around three or so years. The, it basically it died when the Soviet Union died because that cut off any further funding. You know, in the initial years, they, the Soviets left a lot of weapons. Uh, and, you know, the Mujahideen found, you know, these are guys who are great as insurgents, but all of a sudden now they have to run set-piece battles and take over cities. Mm. It suddenly becomes much more difficult. Yeah. You know, so it really did take them some time. I mean, the way it ultimately turned out was very ugly, but it did take some time. In South Vietnam, we brought our troops home in 73. It, you know, it went down in 75, so they lasted a couple of years as well. And some of the same issues in terms of funding where Congress got tired of endless funding. I mean, while we brought the troops home, the view was you know, it's really time for us to get out of this. You know, and, and all of these, unfortunately, the, you know, these systems are incredibly vulnerable. I mean, my article that you mentioned, you know, the point is, if merely announcing we're leaving and starting to pull things out results in you know, mass defections and the, the Afghan army is running away and districts are falling. I mean, you realize, well, there's nothing there. I mean, it's kind of the old comment, there's no there there. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's empty that this is, this is not a serious government that can survive. Well, it just, it just tells us how futile our efforts worked. You know, I was there 10 years ago twice, and we drove the streets, you know, from wherever we were going to the airport, well, a couple of years ago, I mean, a friend of mine who worked in the embassy there told me that the U.S. government stopped sending people on by street to the airport. They flew them by helicopter. So you figure the U.S. embassy doesn't believe the capital city of their protectorate is safe. I mean, after 20 years, uh, doesn't this you know, tell you something? I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. It is, and yet pulling out, admitting you made a mistake is something that... Uh most politicians are loath to do. Uh, as a uh, former, uh, as a recovering politician myself, I can tell <laughs> you, I, it, it's good to admit errors and to say, hey, I got more information and I'm changing. And I think more and more people would recognize that and they won't think you're a wimp if you change your mind. That's just, 
I, I, I don't think it, it will. And so you say that in your title, uh, Afghan government's uh, uh, proposal, potential collapse is another reason to leave. What about these governments? What have there been? There have been a fair amount. We, we chased Osama bin Laden out. Uh, perhaps perhaps we could have gotten him, but we certainly gave them, as you said, the message that, hey, don't, don't shelter these guys. But uh, what, what kind of governments? We know that in Vietnam there was one government after another, and they were all just incredibly corrupt and treated their population rather badly. What kind of governments uh, uh, have there been in Afghanistan that we have you know, surrender, put our lives and limbs and treasure to protect? Well, I mean, one of the problems, if you rely on foreigners, you're always going to look like you're not kind of a real government of that country. And I think that was a problem, you know, in South Vietnam, the U.S. Embassy makes a lot of the decisions, you know, the money, the equipment, everything showing up from the U.S., it allows the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong, who of course were you know a bit separate there. I mean, it's, really yes. there were two forces at work. Yeah, it's important. But it allows them to make the argument that they are the nationalists. Right. They want a Vietnam ruled by Vietnamese. And you know, even if you could argue that you get better government with the U.S. or the U.S. supported folks, I, you know, people want to rule themselves. So it's a very powerful imp- impulse. And I think that's the problem in Afghanistan. I mean, for the m- most part, they have a government that governs Kabul and not a lot else. I mean, or you know, you know, governs Kabul and some other cities. It doesn't control the countryside. I mean, this is a, a place that's always been ruled by the valley and the village. I mean, always very decentralized. I mean, the pre-Civil War phase, there was a king, but it's not like he <laughs> ruled the country. I mean, he, he certainly made no pretense that he actually made decisions all over. You know, he was kind of a figurehead, and he was useful. And, you know, I mean, you know, there's a, a central government that, I don't know, had the U.N. seat or something. But it didn't really rule things. We, we created a system. We wanted to rule out of Kabul. I mean, they you know, set up judges. I mean, all these things that are kind of getting in the way of traditions and, you know, village jurgas and yeah. a whole bunch of other stuff. So the problem is it was kind of an alien structure. Now, and I mean, the corruption was huge, the drug production. I mean, there are these garishly decorated homes that line the streets of uh, Afghanistan, and, and they're called poppy palaces. Uh. Now, the presumption is that, you know, money, the money is, uh, shall we say, not entirely illicit. Yeah. You know, and I mean, they made money off of its contractors. I mean, the U.S. and foreigners poured in oodles of money, which, of course, are middlemen and everything sucked up. Yeah, so for an average Afghan, if you're out in the countryside, the government of Kabul doesn't mean much of anything to you, right. and you're caught in a battle. You know, and I mean, it's horrible. And you, know, you may even, you, I mean, a lot of the Taliban is brutal. So I mean, we shouldn't have any illusions here that you might even prefer the government folks, even if they're not terribly efficient. But the most important thing is you don't want to spend, you know, I mean, we're up to 40 years of civil war that the, the government doesn't seem to be that much better to warrant you know, having an endless war. Uh, so I, and the problem is it was not in any way efficient. I mean, again, trying to deliver services, getting anything done. You know, when I was there both times, I mean, when I talked to Afghans, the only Afghans who had anything good to say about their government was if they were working for it. I mean, nobody uh-huh. else. Uh, and I, I think that's the tragedy, is that in the end, and it's not to say everybody in these governments was bad. They weren't trying to do some good things. I mean, you just try, how do you, 
you just try to imagine governing a country that's never had a strong central government, right. trying to create kind of a Western democratic system for a society that has always been very decentralized without you know, these, I mean, I mean you, you just didn't have kind of governance coming out of Kabul. I mean, this is, and we're trying to set that up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we have a very complex political situation. We worked very closely, the Northern Alliance. So these are the ethnic groups like the Uzbeks and Tajiks. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Taliban is primarily Pashtuns. You know, so you know, we're trying to, we're relying on kind of mi- minorities there. You know, but the question is, that how do you appeal to the Pashtuns? And you know, how do you put together a government they can all agree on? And we're working with these former warlords who are themselves corrupt and brutal and all sorts of stuff. I, it was never going to be easy. But, uh, you know, you, you look back at kind of what we, what we got out of trillions of dollars and thousands of lives. It's mm-hmm. pretty hard to see anything that's going to survive. The Middle East today remains kind of a, a mess. But before the Western victors of the First World War, carved up the region and drew their own lines in the sand, quite literally. The Muslim Ottoman Empire sort of governed a broad collection of tribes loyal to their own. The central government was not at all powerful. And I'm thinking that maybe the description of the Ottoman Empire, which had a sultan, but no real actual political power, I wonder if that description fits Afghanistan, which is also a Muslim culture, maybe better than the Western-imposed idea. Yeah, I mean, I think that, the, to me, the main characteristic of Afghanistan is how it was never a centralized regime. That I don't think you, you ever really... I mean, even you know, like the Ottoman Empire, you know, everybody kind of, you, you look to the... You know, to the you know, whoever you know, the, he is at the time. I mean, you know, and you're going through families and everything, and you, you get you know, kind of you know, court coups and stuff. But still, there's a sense of there's a caliphate, there's someone who really is in charge. Now, the Afghanistan has just been so much more localized that, I mean, and that's the form of governance. And what you know, and I think to some degree, at least, and the, one of the tragedies is that. Historically, as far as I'm aware, that the Islam there was not terribly politicized. I mean, you mm-hmm. you would you know, I, you know t- fifty years ago, sixty years ago, you'd see women in Kabul, you know, dressing in much more in a Western way. That you know, out in the provinces, I mean, out in the villages, out in the valleys, they they right. would be you know covered up. It'd be you know that you had essentially two different worlds, and they could coexist because, in a sense, they didn't matter to one another. That as long as the center didn't try to rule, you know, the outsiders, the outsiders weren't terribly interested in what, you know, what the center did. You know, and all of that, unfortunately, got, I mean, got very complex. They had a communist party, you know, they had a coup, they, you know, they were fighting, the Soviets get involved, I mean, involved in, you know, we use it for the you know, Cold War, you know, and off everything goes where, you know, you not only have your own civil war, but you have all these outsiders involved. So suddenly it's the Soviets and it's the Americans and it's the Pakistanis and it's the Saudis and, you know, I mean, and the whole thing has been kind of taken away from the local folks, you know, whose lives it's supposed to be. It, it, it I've never figured out why uh, Russia and uh, formerly Great Britain with their empires uh, saw Afghanistan as the grand prize. And yet they did. It's an impoverished country. It's not really governable, I don't think. And yet it was the uh, the grand prize of the great game. And uh it, here we are still and, and been fighting about it, and it has been many times the graveyard of empires. And mainstream Democrats in the House and Senate here in, in the U.S. have very publicly worried about what happens 
after our departure from Afghanistan. They're focusing quite realistic fears of how women will fare under the harsh control of the Taliban. This goes along with what you point out. When it comes to Afghanistan, center-left legislators and policy advocates appear to have only slightly less apocalyptic attitude. Please say more on, on this issue that is of concern to a lot of people. Well, again, nothing is, is certain. I mean, look, I, when I was there, we met with women who are very, I mean, the current situation isn't good, but it's, it's, it's light years ahead of where it was. Uh, but they're very concerned and for very good reason. You know, what will come? I think that it's going to be hard to imagine Afghanistan turning back to where it was, simply because so much has happened over the last 20 years. You know, I mean, it's good. Much harder to convince women, you know, in the urban areas to to behave in in ways that you know you presume the Taliban might want. Um, I think part of this number one is I could imagine a federalized system where the Taliban finds it's difficult to try to take cities. So it, it, maybe you just decide you don't need to control them. I mean, does the Taliban really care who you know if they have to be in Kabul or not? So you might find this situation where you know they do control we call Pashtunistan. I mean, it's kind of you know between Pakistan and Afghanistan, the Pashtuns. Uh -huh. You know, they may control most of that territory, but I think it's a very good chance. I mean, up north, they, I mean, you have Hazaris, you have uh, the Tajiks, you have Uzbeks. You know, out in the uh, the western side near the city of Herat, a lot of Iranians, uh, you know, the Persians. You know, and there's talk that Iran might intervene in some way to try to help protect uh, you know people there. You know, I could easily see a an Afghanistan that is not a whole, and it's certainly not a you know, Taliban whole. So then I think suddenly you, you have a patchwork, which means, you know, women in Kabul may be reasonably okay, while, you know, women in, you know, kind of under the Pashtun areas, it's going to be really awful, and maybe if you're in Mazar or in the north, you know, you'll be somewhere in between. Um, and I think that, you know, that's the question for a lot of these issues, uh, you know, of governance, what survives, you know, where do things end up? I mean, to what extent does the Taliban care about being accepted, you know, by the world and perhaps hoping for some money from the world to rebuild? To the extent they think that's important, they may behave more. Mm. You know, and there's a you know, good argument going on as to whether or not they will. I mean, you know, you know you've been fighting for years in a war. It's, uh, you know, you're tough. On the other hand, you have been fighting for years in a war, and you might decide that it's really time to quit. And if we can get something out of this that would be helpful, you know, maybe, you know, let, let's, let's do something here to kind of make a deal. I mean, the tragedy here is the, there's very little the U.S. and the Allies can do. I mean, people have said, oh, look, everything's easy, only 25, 3,500 troops, nobody's died over the last year. Well, that's because the Taliban was negotiating to leave. Uh, you know, if we said, oh, we've decided to stay, but, I mean, the Taliban's going to ramp up against us. You know, so the point is, and we had 100,000 troops there of our own and about 40,000 allied troops there a decade ago. Mm. I mean, if we could not wrap this up then, create a competent Afghan government, route the Taliban, create uh, you know, safe zones for our, uh, you know, our friends, we're going to do that with, what, 25, 3,500 people? I mean, this, uh, so this is kind of staying there forever for what? Yeah. Um, yeah, and that, I mean, that's the great tragedy is that we raised expectations. We've created a lot of folks who have something much better than they once did. Mm. But it, it was always, I mean, a certain fake here, which is this is happening only because we are there. And the same thing happened with Iraq. You know, we create a constitution and insist they put in protections for women. 
And I thought at the time, well, that's great, but who enforces them? I mean, you know, if the locals don't believe this, I mean, who's going to enforce it? That you know, the challenge is, again, we're trying to reorder a society on our own. Yeah. Oh, boy. I mean, it's just it, it, from the outside. I mean, we wouldn't take well to that. No. You know, I mean, social engineering is a difficult enough in America, let alone trying to transcend ethnicity and religion, tradition, history. I mean, everything else that's involved. And uh, I, I'm, I'm enjoying how you're talking as a genuine conservative. There's a lot of people in the Trump Republican Party who call themselves conservative. They're anything but. But what you're talking about, I think, is, to me, what real conservatism is. And for those who just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we can't impose democracy anywhere else. Our guest today is Doug Bando, Senior Fellow at the Libertarian Conservative Cato Institute, uh, previously served as a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation and special assistant to President Ronald Reagan. Uh, and his article is, uh, Withdrawal from Afghanistan must continue. Afghan government's potential collapse is another reason to leave. And, you know, I, we understand Afghanistan is a religious country, and the Taliban seems frightening and mysterious to Westerners. And uh, I think our uh, news media played along with that. It was useful to paint them as that, which I, I don't know. I, I have, they're, they're mysterious to me and a bit frightening. Afghanistan is no North Korea. It's not cut off from Western influences. My guess, and I'd love to hear your reaction to this, is that the country has traditionally been governed locally and regionally and that influences other than the exceedingly rigid 17th century caliphate version of Muslim, that those other versions will not disappear. The 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 more worldly uh, influences, and as with the terror about the Vietnamese takeover of Vietnam, which didn't produce the feared bloodbath, the future Afghan of Afghanistan is not assured to be forever under the domination of the radical Muslims. I'm thinking. Maybe, maybe Taliban will take over at first, but there's a lot of people in Afghanistan who, you know, again, have not been cut off from the world like North Korea has. Your thoughts on next, you know, six months, a year, whatever in Afghanistan? Well, I think what's critical is that, you know, while historically America has not had a great influence in Afghanistan, I mean, all the surrounding countries as well as the UK have been involved. I mean, there's been Russian influence. There's, you know, I mean, all of the stands, you know, which you know, have variously been you know, part of Russia, part of the Soviet Union, now independent. Iran matters. Pakistan matters. China matters. India matters. I mean, all of these countries. And that's, to me, that's one of the important issues here, thinking about an American withdrawal, is that what we're doing right now, actually, is we're solving the problem for these other countries. I mean, I just tell people, look at a map and tell me how it is in America's interest to garrison Afghanistan. Yeah. I mean, look at who else is there. I mean, all these countries have much more at stake. The idea that somehow we can project our influence. There. I mean, people who talk about Bagram Air Force Base is really good because we could use it to bomb the Chinese. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this is this is living dream world. 
I mean, I mean, if there's a war with China, they're going to take that out. You, you, I mean, if we're using it to bomb them, I mean, you know, you, you can imagine the, the missiles that are going to be hitting that the instant there's a declaration of war. And, you know, the, I mean, no Afghan government would allow us to do that. So we'd have to do it against you know, the, the consent of the government, you know, so much for our democratic notions then. So, so you get these kind of fantasy ideas. But I think one of the hopes here, and, and one thing the administration might be able to be helpful on is to try to bring together all of these countries. And it needs to include Iran. I mean, you know, I mean, the U.S. has sure. this very weird. I mean, I, I don't under, you know, they act as if you know, Iran is the superpower and America is the poor third world yeah. state. <laughs> that, you know, Iran is about to take over America. I mean, this is the, the silliest. I mean, I, it, it's very, very strange. Yes. You know, Iran has interests there. They need to be, you know, if you want to have a secure settlement, you need to have them involved. So we need to get those countries together and say nobody wants terrorism. Nobody wants gross instability. I mean, think about how do you know, and countries have cross interests. I mean, Pakistan and India don't get along very well. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the, the Russia and China do. On the other hand, they have some interests that might be in conflict. And where does Iran fit in? That they need to sit down and talk about what can they all do to help ensure that there's a transition to something that's not a disaster. And I think that they're quite prepared to be involved in that, that, you know, it is their interest. They'd prefer we stay. If we don't, they're going to have to act. Ah. So I think that's, that's another good, and I think you're right about Islam. I mean, unfortunately, we've seen in recent years the rise of this much more, yeah. you know, fundamentalist. I mean, part of that's been funded by the Saudis. I mean, the, the Wahhabism and, and stuff yeah. that, uh, you know, but I do think that, you know, you can certainly have the alternative come back. I mean, one of the best antidotes to the Islamic fundamentalism is to be ruled by, you know, fundamentalist Muslims. Is that, I mean, you see, you know, in the movement in the Middle East, Iraq, Lebanon, for example, protests, you know, demanding to get, you get rid of sectarian governance, to vote not based on sectarian parties. Young people, just tired of the system that's yeah. kind of used to, to loot and pillage as opposed to, you know, have good governance. Mm. So I'm hopeful in that. And, you know, it would be nice you know, to imagine that in uh, you know, Afghanistan. I think the harder thing is that the distant, again, it, there are kind of two Afghanistans, you know, much more urban and close to urban versus very distant, you know, much more, sure. you know, kind of rural, that uh, reaching those, those further rural areas is much tougher. But again, nothing's set in stone, so we shouldn't assume the Afghanistan we see today is the one that necessarily will be there in 10 years or 20 years. Yeah, I, I, the people are not... Uh... You know, they're educated there. They value education. And women, you know, they feel, from what I've read, they do feel scared. And I was read recently that uh, there's women organizing in armed militias uh, to protect themselves from the more radical yes. Taliban. And, you know, as I, some, as I say, some uh, uh, U.S. senators uh, have said, no, we can't leave. Democrats have said, women Democratic senators have said, no, we can't leave because the women are at risk. And I, I just, they're not uneducated women. They're, they're, you know, they can participate in, the, in making the future, at least to some extent. And I, I think, you know, when people say, well, we can't leave because the women are at risk, that sort of insults the people of Afghanistan and the women, I think, who are able to uh, perhaps take matters into their own hands. But I think, I mean, it's also this weird sense of, I don't think there's anyone who would, if, you know, if we had not been there, I don't think there's anyone who would be saying, oh, look, we need to go to Afghanistan to save the women. No. I mean, 
it, it, I mean, it would, this. So, I mean, I, I, I do think this is a serious issue. I mean, the women are treated horribly oh, in societies like that. Yes, but it, we, we normally don't go to war. I mean, going to war is not. I mean, we, we certainly learned that in, in Iraq. War is not a humanitarian enterprise. And if I was going to start bombing countries that treated women badly, I think I'd start with Saudi Arabia. Let's take Absolutely. out, you know, the palace of the crown prince and sink his you know, yacht. Maybe that'll get him to start you know, treating women better or something. You know, I mean, and you, in almost any of the, the Muslim countries, I mean, they vary significantly. Some of the Gulf monarchies are, are pretty liberal in that regard. But others, like, the, I mean, the Saudis are awful. I mean, there's some improvements that have been made, but it's still well down the list. Iran, you know, is another one, treats women very badly. You know, so the... The idea that this has suddenly become an American war aim, I mean, I think, again, you have to answer the question, you know, somebody says, why is my son or daughter died in Afghanistan? You know, saying, well, we're going over there to try to, you know, you know, kind of enforce gender equality in the mountains of Afghanistan. I I think Americans would look at you like you've you've completely lost your mind. And I just, you know, we can't. like, I mean, war is horrible. I mean, I, I, there are a lot of good things I would like to do, but we should learn. I, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have died as a result of America's war making in the last you know, d- two decades, and most of those are foreigners. I mean, we worry about our own casualties, as we should, yeah. but hundreds of thousands of civilians are dead. You know, so the notion that, well, let's, let's try it again, we, you know, we're going get, to get it right this time, I just, I just don't believe it. And it's interesting, in and... and probably most wars, certainly in the American Civil War, the reasons for the war kept changing as it went along. You know, I was just keeping the Union together. And, and you know, our original aim in, in Afghanistan was to give the message, don't harbor terrorists. And then we got, it seemed like uh, uh, Osama bin Laden was on the run, and somehow the war aims uh, changed. And you, you write that the government in Kabul the, the capital is encouraging revival of what amount to private militaries with promises of arms and other support. Last week, President Ashraf Ghani met with influential former anti-Soviet and anti-Taliban militia leaders. This was reported to the Washington Post and urged creation of a united front to safeguard the republic system. What's your reaction to that? What's your expectation about this idea? Well, uh... I don't blame them. That is, it's pretty clear that the Afghan military, upon which the U.S. has spent tens or hundreds of billions of dollars, I'm not sure how much, uh, isn't working. I mean, you know, imagine that. I mean, they're literally, I mean, they, like up, up north, they negotiated. They, you know, the Taliban kind of sent a note to the local garrison and said, you know, the Americans are leaving. You really don't want to fight on behalf of Kabul. Look, if you guys surrender... Everything will be fine. Nobody's going to hurt you. Just you'll give your weapons to us. You can go do what you want. And lo and behold, that's what the garrison did. I mean, the, so the Afghan authorities are pretty desperate. So if you're in that position, I understand why you look and say, who knows how to fight? Well, it's those old Mujahideen and kind of. Yeah, so that makes sense, given what you're fighting. It just this is, this is not a good answer in the sense that these, you know, these are not. You know, Jeffersonian Democrats who are you know ready to kind of you know create the the next version of the Afghan state. I mean, the, you know, oh boy, you know, the, I mean, these are kind of the old Mujahideen who are quite willing to kill lots of people. They don't sure. treat women very well. Uh, I mean, all, you know, all of those sorts of issues. 
that uh, you know don't have any illusions. But if you're desperate, it's kind of I guess what you do. So I can't I can't really criticize them. I mean, I think whatever the outcome is is going to be ugly. So this is a different mm-hmm. form of ugly. If it to me, if it limits the Taliban, the critical thing here is to limit the reach of the Taliban. That I think if you have areas that are not governed by the ter- Taliban, then at least you have alternatives for people. Yeah. And, you know, people, they can find sanctuary. I mean, you know, you, you know you're not going to live an intellectual, you know, kind of life of equality, et cetera, out in the rural territory. But if, you've, you know, if you're able to support, you know, kind of metro areas, so not just the city, but at least somewhere around there, you know, you could actually have a fair chunk of the po- you know, population in a much better shape you know, under much better governance, just recognizing, you know, these are all second or third or fourth bests, however you want to put it. And in Vietnam, our military was immensely more powerful, and I suspect uh, that's been the case here, although the U.S. early on did help the the Mujahideen, which became the Taliban in their fight against uh, the Soviet Union, because, you know, I suppose some people, uh, anything to fight the Soviets... And some Republicans uh, did that for sure uh, and helped out create the Mujahideen. And so our military is much more powerful in Vietnam and in Afghanistan. The government soldiers and police were being defeated by poorly resourced and unexceptionally led Taliban. Without winning the hearts and minds of the people of Vietnam, victory was impossible. What did the Taliban fight for? What motivated them? Some have argued that the very meaning of being an Afghan, to having that identity was a crucial factor in America's defeat there. What could have constituted a win for America? And certainly uh, Cuba's government uh, built itself up on anti-American, you know, we're poor victims of America, and it strengthened the, the government. I wonder if something similar has happened in Afghanistan, and maybe uh, without the Americans there, it'll be a different uh, uh, process at work. Well, I do think, like, relying on some of these militias and stuff, it will help in that regard. That is, nobody doubts these folks are Afghans. I mean, one of the problems here, I think, is, you know, people supporting the Taliban are much more likely to view themselves as Pashtuns as opposed to Afghans. That, you know, the, the, the number of folks who kind of look past those kind of identities, I think, you know, again, Tajiks, Uzbeks, you know, when we went in, the, the North, what's called the Northern Alliance, which yeah. is the last group really fighting the Taliban, was very much ethnically based. I mean, you know, all sides could have, you know, some of everybody else, but you know, there really was a distinction there. There was a tendency that Pashtuns, you know, fought together, yeah, and then we're you know, fighting against you know, these other particular ethnic groups. Mm-hmm. So I think to some degree that's, that's a very important part of it. And you know, we had at least some Pashtuns in, in the government we supported as well as other groups. The problem was they, they clearly were allied with the foreigners, and I think that's a problem, is that, right. I mean, it's always going to undermine your credibility, even if, I mean, in fact, you're fighting people who are bad. You know, there's still that sense of, yeah, but you're, you know, you're from across the ocean. I mean, are you, 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 you aren't like us. You don't share our religion. You know, you don't have our culture. You're not from here. You're yet another alien group. You know, what's your agenda? Um, 
know, yeah. they've, they've long resisted that, you know, and they've had a long history of folks coming along, not for their benefit. I mean, you know, the United Kingdom wants to, you know, colonize it. It's the Russians or it's whoever, you know, I mean, these, these people really weren't showing up to, to be nice to them. <laughs> no. You know, they, they, they want, they wanted to take control. And the, the Afghan reaction was yeah, yeah, over, you know, over my dead body. And I've got my gun to kind of help, help make that happen. Yeah. <clears throat> so, I mean, I think that's, and, and I don't know how we could have gotten around that. Right? To me, that's the, if we got in early on, the question is, how do you give greater leadership role to Afghans? How do you ensure, I mean, part of it, I think, was having much you know, lighter ambitions. That if you want to support a government there, it has to be you know, a, a much lighter touch. That is, it's not going to try to run the hinterland. Mm. That uh, that's not going to be cobbled. You figure out, okay, we we don't want you know the Taliban taking over some of these other areas. How do you do that in a way that you know says we acknowledge and, and we work with and we accept local leaders? Mm-hmm. You know, we just want to make sure that the Taliban are not the one who are in military control. But we have no interest in kind of imposing dictates from Kabul or anything else. You know, is there a way to have done that? Are there people who could have been in the Afghan government that you know in Kabul who might have been presentable as you know we do, you know making that same case that we want to put together essentially a very federal system. We want you to be free to run your own lives. That's the critical thing: is we want to make sure you're free to run your own lives, as opposed to you know. I don't know if if we, uh, but clearly that didn't happen, unfortunately. And and I I wonder, you know, we've we've tried to over and over and over again impose our will and put our governments in place, all over the place, and it hasn't worked. I wonder, and you know, there's there's Iran, which I think not everybody there. I may be wrong. Hates America. There's a lot of Westernization there. Is there an opening for America after we leave if we try something really uh, different and and respecting them? Do you think? Well, I think over time. Yeah. I mean, uh-huh. Vietnamese like having us there. I mean that, uh, and you know, part of that is concern over China. You know, they have party connections to China, but they're very nervous for a lot of other good reasons. You know, and they they love having Americans there now. So that that is one of those oh. things where time really did kind of heal, wow. you know, the the old wounds. I mean, to some degree, I look at both Germany and Japan. I mean, there, there are unique circumstances after World War II, but again, you know, they're fighting in a war, you know, and you know they came to be very happy you know, dealing with the folks who took who took over. I mean, the tragedy of Iran is, I mean, it's a very sophisticated society, well educated. Yes. You know, there are very real difference between city dwellers who are more likely to speak English, more likely to have professional jobs, and people in rural, you know, Iran. You know, city dwellers tend to like us. I mean, you know, they, they don't like the religious controls. They don't like the cultural limitations, the dress. I mean, all all this stuff. Sure. Very much resented. Uh, you know, they don't like kind of being governed by the sort of people who do the governing. Those aren't their values. They're much more secular. And for the most part, they like the U.S. The problem is, you know, the U.S. squanders that. I mean, we sanction them. We kind of ruin their lives. We make it hard for them. I mean, to live a, a normal life, let alone, I mean, even hard to get medicine, hard to, I mean, you know, and you look at polling, I mean, there was real hope with the JCPOA. I mean, I think President Obama was right. Yeah, we, we, there may have been too much hope on a, on a quick change, but my view was over the long term, what you're doing here is you're getting young people into the Western economic system uh-huh. that will create huge problems 
for the ruling establishment because you are showing them the alternative, you're showing them the options, and that's exactly what you should do. And they all had high hopes for that. So if the response, if we made it easier for them to get into businesses, I mean, the problem is banks, nobody wanted to handle it, even under the Obama administration. You know, so if you had Obama followed by a president who would have worked hard to kind of make you know, it work for Iran to be part of the Western economic system, I think then you would have been in a much better you know, chance, you would have had a much better chance to try to you know, show that different face of America, mm. you know, build support from people who you know, may very well have already been you know, kind of inclined towards you, others who saw the opportunity that it's coming. And I think that's the long-term hope there is you know, change within. I mean, you know, there was great anger over the, the recent election that was kind of rigged, yeah. you know, where you had you know, basically only a th- roughly a third of the people you know, it really voted. I mean, they, they had about half who voted, and then of those, 13, 14% were spoiled ballots. So you're down to something like 36%. You know, turnout, normally they have 70, 80%, those kind of numbers. Mm. So, I mean, there are a lot of people there who don't like the current system, you know, who you know, at the moment I think are very discouraged. And, you know, they, they feel, you know, that they, they were basically, you know, the U.S., you know, kind of threw them under the bus, you know, so to speak. Mm. The U.S., had created this opportunity for them, and then lo and behold, you know, Donald Trump comes in, and you know, now we go to maximum pressure, which of course is a complete failure, other than to ruin the lives of millions of Iranians. <laughs> well, I I wonder about uh, what's the endless war lobby going to do now? They don't care where there's a war, just as long as there's a war. And it sounds like it's the same military-industrial complex which Eisenhower warned about in 1961. What once this once we get the heck out of Afghanistan, what are those guys going to do? Do you have any guess? Well, I, I think the big question, the real day, frankly, the, the most important danger is uh, China. I mean, China yeah. has become mm-hmm. the new uh, the new excuse for uh, intervention, the new excuse for military spending, and. If there's war with China, it's a big war, and it won't be just one war. No. I mean, the point is the idea that, oh, you know, I mean, if, if there was a war over Taiwan and we won, then they, everything would be wonderful. No, I mean, they would start preparing the next day for the next war. I mean, think you know, World War One, World War Two. Right, Germany didn't go away. The Germans <laughs> wanted revenge. You know, so the idea that China would give up, I mean, no, that's, that's a fantasy world. So I think that's the one, you know, that is really the most dangerous at the moment, because... It, it brings together a kind of economic protectionism. It brings together, you know, arguments over security. It brings together, you know, kind of a, a, the, the human rights, which, I mean, it, it's a bad place for human rights. I mean, no one should have any illusions about that. Yeah. Uh, but the problem is you put all of that together. I mean, people on the right especially are talking in very dangerous apocalyptic terms. You know, the, what a threat this is and the danger and we need more ships and this and that and Oh my goodness! I, I just I, I think the chances of an accidental war over a place like Taiwan are very real. Uh, you know, this is a nuclear armed power. I mean, this is you know, this is not stuff to take chances on. No, and the Chinese are not being real nice in Hong Kong either. They're you know, yep, they're, that's right, for sure. And I I wonder about you know the original stated reason for us going into Afghanistan was to fight against uh, the caliphate and the Islamic State and all those bad guys who want to attack us. So I can imagine the right-wing, you know, endless war lobby saying, whoa, the Islamic State, all right, you guys left 
Afghanistan. Are they not going to scout new locations for, you know, more terror after this and that we we dropped the ball? And, you know, I can I can I wonder how Biden is going to do out of this. It's a big political risk. Uh, I wonder how domestic politics uh, may be affected by this by this pullout. And what about the argument that uh, oh, we let the uh, Taliban off easy? We, we gave up. We let them win. Your thoughts? Oh, I mean, the right is already making that argument. I mean, the, the point here is that there are plenty of ungoverned spaces on Earth for terrorists to operate. So, I mean, Afghanistan has never been critical for that. Indeed, that just happened to be where, uh, you know, Osama bin Laden ended up. He was getting some of that, that Mujahideen money, uh, you know, to fight the Soviets. And you know, 9/11 was not planned there. I mean, this is—I mean, you know, the uh, what was it? The, the, what is it? Sheikh? I'm trying to think. Mohammed Sheikh Khalid or Khalid? Or, yeah, I think you know, that's the planner. right. Yeah, I mean, he he refused to relocate to to uh, Afghanistan. Bin Laden wanted him to move there. He refused to. I mean, he did the planning elsewhere. They, I mean, all of the you know everybody who was on the planes, they were trained elsewhere. Yes. You know, the money was raised raised elsewhere. I mean. It had really nothing to do with Afghanistan. So the point is, terrorism can continue anywhere. I mean, it really has nothing to do with Afghanistan. Uh, you know, the president is talking about wanting to have some ability to reach in with special forces and drones. And, you know, I mean, that's not unreasonable. Just, to, you know, well, of course, it's important to recognize how badly I think we've done with drones at times where we've killed innocent people. That, yeah. you know, suddenly it you know, creates some, I mean, it's bad in moral terms. It's also bad in practical terms. Yes. It convinces people to, you know, Attack I, mean, I, yes. I ask people, what would you think if your neighbor's house was blown up by a Chinese drone and they explain, well, they were terrorists? I mean, would you think, oh, that's okay, <laughs> or would you have some, you know, uh, choice thoughts about what should be done to the, to the Chinese? I mean, again, we, we live in this dream world of, you know, we're wonderful, everybody else is yeah, evil, and right. we have trouble imagining I, how people actually feel about this stuff. Uh, you know, but I think the main, and, I, and if there is a terrorist attack, they will almost certainly try to tie it to Afghanistan. I mean, I just think uh -huh. that that's, that's a fake argument that, you know, you could have terrorists anywhere. You know, we've done much better in terms of policing. You know, Af it looks to me like Al Qaeda had one shot. They, they did terrible damage back then, but mm -hmm. we haven't seen anything to demonstrate they can do that again. I don't think the Taliban will tolerate to the extent they know of it, terrorist operations. They'll work with Al Qaeda against us, but that doesn't mean they want you know, Al-Qaeda to start plotting terrorist you know, operations, because you know, that'll bring us back. And also, I think, again, this is where the Russians and the Chinese and Indians, even Pakistanis, Iranians, none of them want terrorists operating out of Afghanistan. Yeah, so I think sure. there's a lot of opportunities there to cooperate, to say, again, you narrow it down, you know, what are we after? You know, we're not going to worry about how the Taliban rules, assuming they come to power. But we are gonna, what we do care about is people plotting attacks in other countries. And if, we, if all, everyone together says, you better not do that, my guess is that the Taliban you know, will do their best to stop it. They might work, actually. Well, this is, it's good to talk to a genuine conservative for a change, I must say. Doug Bando is a fellow, senior fellow at the Libertarian Conservative Cato Institute. Uh, he writes a weekly column for the American Conservative and antiwar.com. Thank you so much as we uh, move into a new phase with uh, us getting out of Afghanistan that uh, I wish it could have happened sooner. Thank you so much for informing us about so much of what's going on there, the realities. Thank you. Happy to be on. 